And welcome to Mining Stock Daily. It's an intraday, some market commentary and editorial this afternoon. And today I am joined by our friend Bruno Kaiser, who is the Managing Director, Head of Metals and Mining for Dehardine's Capital Markets, based in Toronto. Bruno, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. We have a couple different, um, uh, different, couple different subjects I wanted to chat with you today. But before we get started, I just want to give some brief uh, updates in the market. Let's start out with gold futures just down marginally, uh, about uh, a buck, buck, just over a buck. Uh, silver futures uh, just down three cents, so we're seeing a little bit of consolidation, not much moving um, in the precious metals. Uh, the GDX is up 15 cents, and uh, similarly, uh, marginal upsides on some of the uh, silver ETFs as well. Uh, speaking of ETFs, Bruno, we are going to talk about that. You are kind of uh, turning out to be our ETF uh, guru from a holistic standpoint. I know we can't really speak specific about specific ETFs, um, but I want to get in touch with you and ask you kind of on the back of what we saw from some of the oil ETFs last week as oil, the price of oil collapsed. Uh, we saw oil in negative territory as it closed the contract uh, that month, this previous month, uh, the USO ETF was just abysmal. Had to do, I believe, it was a 10 for 1 split. But this had replica- uh, repercussions for a lot of ETFs, not only in oil, uh, but for other uh, ETFs and in other industries. So I wanted to get your thoughts here on on where that, you know, kind of the backdrop of how that really uh, brought things forth. And it really is uh, re- re-emphasizes what you continue to speak about uh, here on Mining Stock Daily the last few months. Well, thanks for that. Yeah, you know, it's very interesting. When we first started talking about the negative implication that ETFs have on the actively managed markets, whether that's in mining and precious metals or just its overall market, um, the, the, the same principles apply for all ETFs and all, you know, actively managed markets. And, of course, we're primarily concerned about mining. But <clears throat> as I mentioned one or two calls ago, the issue with ETFs is when the markets are rising – because the ETFs have to, um, they have to buy because the because retail or institutional investors are buying the actual ETF and contributing capital into it. They uh, they buy on the bid side, uh, rather on the ask side. In other words, uh, they're they're chasing the market up. They're always buying the high price, what the seller is willing to sell at, and uh, and they chase their markets up. Generally speaking, markets don't go, I mean, they can go up rapidly, but they, they don't go up, you know, huge double digits percentages in a day. So what you end up happening, have happening is that the, uh, the underlying NAV and the ETF track each other fairly closely, but it's the ETFs that essentially are buying the market up and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, on the way down, what, what happens is the exact same thing. They're buying on the bid side. In other words, what someone is, they're selling on the bid side, what someone is willing to buy the market at. And astute active buyers will obviously always want to pay the lowest price, and the ETFs are selling at that price, and they drive themselves down. And markets fall faster than they rise, generally speaking. And when we have a crash in oil or in general markets like we've had over the last six to eight weeks, <clears throat> ETF can't keep up with itself, and so it keeps piling out further downwards and downwards, and you get a massive dislocation between the NAV and the the, the quoted price. Um, and that's the major disadvantage of, of owning an ETF. Yes, you pay substantially less than what you pay in an actively managed fund, but it is not 
it's not sinking money. It's simply chasing up or chasing down. Um, all the thought that goes into it is when it is created and what constituents go into it. Uh, and generally speaking, the additions and subtractions thereof are, are automatic. Um, and when we were talking about what would happen with, you know, what, what could happen to reverse the change, uh, or rather the, the secular move into passive money from active money, um, I believe that we thought that one of the constituent uh, uh, triggers could be, uh, you know, a massive crash in the market. So that's happened in a couple of ETFs. Uh, you know, for the sake of actual capital markets, I, I kind of hope it happens a little bit, uh, a little bit more. Uh, to shake ETFs out, and then we can get back into um, a rationally functioning capital markets. Bruno, I'm just kind of curious about uh, some of these triple leveraged uh, ETFs. Uh, something like, for example, a JNUG, uh, just for lack of a better <laughs> uh, example. Uh, like a JNUG uh, came out, not only did they do an eight to one split, but they also went from triple leverage down to double leverage. And I'm just kind of curious, theoretically, does a, say something like a triple leverage ETF now continue to have triple the problems and they're just trying to now have double the problems instead? Or, or you know, what are your thoughts here? Yeah, I think that's that's the case. I mean, you start to get into a bit of a funkier kind of management of those funds, but it's the it, it's it's when those ETFs start to plummet in value, and you've essentially erased more value than you have in the ETF. Um, the, the money gets pulled out faster than the ETF can keep up, and you end up with uh, you end up with a big problem. And so, I think they've had to adjust that that leverage in order to keep some of the money in it. Because if I'm not mistaken, one of the oil ETFs has actually had to shut its doors. I can't remember which one, but I seem to recall reading one of them. Mm. I know USO did, a, I believe it was a 10 for one split uh, to get out of single digits. So, <laughs> And I, don't, I haven't looked at it to see where it's at. I know oil continued, the, the June contract on oil continued to move down. And so, therefore, I believe USO is moving down as well. Um, Bruno, I, I think it is. Uh, we sh we should ask you about the GDX, and I know, um, you know, kind of from a theoretical standpoint, from where you are, and the GDX did close last week at a seven-year high above that thirty-two mark. Uh, from somebody like you in the investment side of the business and in, in mining, I guess I just wanted to get your thoughts and maybe it doesn't have to be terribly specific and maybe again, more theoretical of what that meaning was for investment coming into uh, the ma the major miners. Well, um, you know, it's, it's that upside swing on because we've had such a positive run on gold for good reason. Um, uh, you know, the GDX, has tended to be one of the first sources for people to invest into the market, into the gold sector, right? So um, they're they're following the constituents upwards, and uh, and it continues. It's a good thing from the perspective of bringing money into the into the sector. Uh, when the GDX goes up, uh, the underlying constituents get bid up to to match, right? Um, and of course, that leads to new highs and and positivity all around. And hopefully, for some of the companies, it leads leads them to stronger balance sheets or ability to capitalize on the capital markets to develop new projects. So there is a there is a second degree positive from a rising uh, from a rising ETF. Um, one of the things that that is interesting for all indexes, all indices, and ETFs is when it comes to the rebalancing period. And stocks that are just on the margin of entering an index or an ETF, and and vice versa, stocks that are on the margin of, of falling out, 
there are specialist managers who will buy those stocks assumed to make it in uh, and sell the stocks assumed to fall out uh, because it's widely recognized that once you make it into an index, there'll probably be a, a major uplift on your stock as you get that many more followers and money attracted to you. And similarly, you'll lose a lot of money uh, once you get kicked out. So there's been arbitrage that people play. And you start to see monkey business that goes on in the stocks. <clears throat> you know, for example, uh, you know, quarter at the end of quarters or in half years is typically when they're done. Let's uh, actually that's a really good transition because I did want to ask you about actually a company that was just uh, placed into the GDX. I believe it was last week or two weeks ago. Um, on Friday, and that was Equinox Gold. And it's not pertaining directly with Equinox Gold, but it actually is pertaining to Yamana. And when this news was announced, uh, you were the first person that popped into my mind because I had to get a clarification on this. And so you you broke it down for me. But uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, Yamana did announce that they were going to raise up uh, $201 million Canadian off the sale of their Equinox Gold shares. And I had never seen this before. I mean, obviously, I haven't been in the industry long enough to see something this creative. Uh, so if you could uh, kind of break down for our listeners um, what this actually means, because this is actually a financing product that is used uh, somewhat frequently on the U.S. side of things. Yeah. Uh, you know, when you break it down to its bare bones constituents with constituent parts <clears throat> what the amount it took advantage of was it's essentially it was essentially selling uh equinox volatility because volatility is the most important uh, consideration or one of the most important considerations in options and warrants pricing <clears throat> and the way yamana structured that transaction was that they were selling forward uh equinox at a uh at a, at a higher price, a, a portion of which they would deliver in the future off the back, if I'm not mistaken, of warrants that they themselves own. But they sold, um, you know, they, they, they sold for future delivery, shall we say. And so it allowed them to capitalize on the warrant value and the option value of Equinox. And so typically where we see that happen is in the construct of uh, convertible market, uh, convertible debentures and convertible bonds. <clears throat> in the U.S., uh, particularly about... 20 years ago, there was a structure, there still is a structure, but it, was, it was, used to be far more popular called an exchangeable bond, where one company could sell its, or potentially sell its interest in another company in stock that it owned by attaching warrants to a bond and making it look like a convertible. So um, this is not what Yamana did, but in this context, in this context Yamana could have sold a Yamana bond but it would have converted into Equinox stock at a given price. If Equinox stock had risen by the strike date or the expiry of the bond, then Yamana would have uh, would have expunged the bond uh, off of the delivery of Equinox paper. And so it really was the same sort of thing, except as a baseload deal, what they did was they sold Equinox paper and then they sold more Equinox paper in the future on top of it. So um, I thought that was an interesting way of going about it. it. It really was interesting. I had never seen some. I had never seen a company finance their own company on the back of somebody else's of shares of another company they owned. It was, <laughs> I mean, it was creative. I got to give them credit. Give them kudos for that. So yeah. Uh, you know, sp- well, I think as we. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. I was just as we. I think we. You and I discussed before one of the, one of the funnier ones. 
funny in a sort of peculiar way that took place also 25 years ago. There was a company called Horsham that Peter Monk started, which was a holding company. Um, and I guess he thought because he was very smart or very lucky with Barrick, he would start a, a you know an actively managed holding company. Uh, and he seeded Horsham with Barrick stock. And then eventually Horsham sold its Barrick stock through an exchangeable bond. Um, and so it was really selling its underlying value away into the market. I thought that was really funny in a circular sort of way. But well, and continuing on yeah. with the theme of financing, Bruno, I, I, it is kind of more of an observation from myself, and I'd like some clarification from you. Uh, it seems like a lot of the bigger companies, mid-tiers to the majors, uh, such as a Yamana, are able to we're seeing a lot of big financings hit the market and people willing to put capital to work on some of these major companies. However, the explorers and some of the advanced developers are still really struggling to raise capital uh, to continue their exploration work. Just clarify this. Is this, uh, is this a correct observation or, or is is this something you're seeing on your end? Is there, is there any willingness to put capital uh, to work and uh, really uh, boots on the ground type of exploration plays right now? So uh, that's a, continue, a continuing theme from before the market crash and before this very, I think, obvious secular positive turn in, in the gold market, which is that the really small companies and the explorers find it hard to attract capital. And the reason that is is because of their absolute size and liquidity um, they fall outside of the interest of most institutional fund managers. And it's once they become more index attractive or ETF inclusive that they become more interesting to the, to the active fund managers because they're large enough and more liquid, right? Um, so the junior, the really junior microcap companies are still struggling in that front. With the financings that we've seen um, happen over the last bit, I would say uh, bode well for the future for those explorers, but we just have not seen any element of it yet. So I'm going to cite as examples Silvercrest, Orla, and Bluestone. Those are three transactions that took place over the last number of weeks. And the commonality between them is that they're all funding high-quality uh, construction projects, if you will. They're all at the, at the verge of construction decisions or have made construction decisions. Uh, now, the Bluestone one, you could say, is the, is the riskiest because it's in Guatemala and it's got great grade, but it's got you know different challenges to it that I know management can address very well. But notwithstanding that, uh, that deal apparently sold extremely well. Uh, we were part of the Orla and the Silvercrest transactions, and both of those were extremely well subscribed. And it was because they are high-quality projects in Mexico, which notwithstanding Mexico's you know, current issues is still a, a tier one mining destination. And, uh, and the interest is, is continuing to, to, uh, to grow for companies of, of that ilk. Um, it's just the, that sort of drill bit, what, so, what sort of project do we have stage company that we're struggling to see yet still. But I suspect what will happen is as the gold market um, positive trend and secular positive market continues to gel, and people believe it's going to stay around, then there'll be uh, a move downwards for people to get more torque because you can go very quickly from a, becoming a $30 million company to a $150 million company um, with enough interest and success, right? Do you think uh, the retail crowd uh, pushing more capital into some of these exp exploration plays might 
give a little oomph for the uh, institutional investors to come in and and, and uh, kind of sway their sway their minds quickly. Um, I think it, it could be one or the other. I, I mean this not in a demeaning way, but it's you know markets are fear or greed, right? So. <laughs> Um, if we continue to see gold rise, we're going to end up seeing a, uh, a greed market come in where uh, institutions or retail investors recognize that this is the next next leg of a uh, company to invest in because the market will probably be around long enough and has enough positive legs to it. So um, that is what I anticipate will happen when, A, two things happen. People feel secure enough to invest in the market at large again. And B, the positive gold market hangs around long enough for us to uh, convince people that, you know, that it really does have, you know, potentially years to go. Bruno, uh, that's probably about all the time we have for today. I really appreciate the time you always give us. So thank you so much. And um, we'll be sure to follow up with you here in the coming weeks to see how this all plays out. Maybe revisit this financing um, idea. And and maybe by then... uh, Perhaps not. Uh, we see a little bit more financings trickle down to those exploration plays. But uh, really appreciate you and your time, and thank you so much for joining us once again. Anytime. I'm always happy to speak to you and your listeners.